Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. I've been on the losing end of a battle with a nasty cold over the past week, so apologies for my congestion. My guests on this episode are Sean Claffey and Dave Pedersen, the director and the co-writer of a documentary called Americond. The film examines how the past few generations of workers in the U.S. have experienced income inequality and how once powerful unions have been crushed by big business and its government influence. Wages aren't keeping up, yet productivity has skyrocketed, largely on the backs of the American middle class. The rich are getting richer. The middle class is seeing the bottom drop out. Why? And what do seismic shifts in wealth mean for the future of the middle class as consumers and citizens? Here's the film's trailer. We're on our way to show some solidarity uh, with the union. Yo, bro, you work for Amazon? You gonna vote for that union? There just won't be enough jobs to give all Americans a decent livable wage. I want my kids to grow up in a society where they don't have to struggle as hard as we do. That's what we need to fight for. I mean, our middle class is, you know, I don't want to say it's gone, but it erodes every single day. Do you think they're going to build any affordable housing here? Oh, hell no. I don't want to work any jobs, nights, weekends. I want a life. The trick in trickle-down economics is getting you to believe that anything which is good for rich people is good for everyone. And anything that is good for everyone else will kill the economy. A union agitator. If they're not going to take care of their employees, somebody has to. They don't invest in us. They don't show us the resources. It's just not sustainable. The, the system is going to collapse. We got to take care of ourselves. We can't rely on the government, and we damn sure can't rely on the 1% class. This is union busting one-on-one. They're going to spend millions of dollars just to stop that. The voting wrapping up. Now employees are waiting on results. If successful, it could spark a labor movement across the country. Look at everyone out here suffering. What are you doing for us? Our job as Americans is to fight to save this country. We need bold actions, organizing. We can't allow ourselves to be divided. It's really time to rise and fight. I need all of y'all. Are you going to get in the streets and do something? You can handle the responsibility of being a leader. Say it with your chest. <laughs> Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And as always, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do follow and share. Now on to my conversation about Americond with director Sean Claffey and co-producer and writer Dave Pedersen. Sean Claffey and Dave Pedersen, welcome to Making Media Now. We are here to talk about your film, Americond. And before we get into talking about the film, I want to give each of you an opportunity to uh, share a bit about yourselves with our listeners. And Sean, as the director of the film, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about Sean Claffey. I've been in the film industry for about 25 plus years. 
came up doing music videos, TV commercials, um, started directing pilots about 15 years ago. You know, got to work with some great people, including Dave. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we got to make this important film at uh, an important time. And this is your first documentary that you've directed, is that correct? Yeah, first full-length documentary, yeah. That's great. Congrats on that. And Dave? Uh, I, I go back in the industry about, you know, to 25 years or so. A little before that, I spent time as a, um, a software developer. And then before that, I was an, I did some acting. Um, so I've been doing this for 25 years. Um, I, you know, I was part partners with Morgan Spurlock for a bunch of years. Uh, we had an old company called the Interact Consortium that developed like the first show that ever went from the internet to television, uh, which became I Bet You Will on MTV. Hmm. Um, and then I did a bunch of other projects with him, including Super Size Me. And, you know, and then I've done a lot of like some business stuff. Like I did film sales for a while, things like that. But creating is what I like to do. So I got back to creating and, you know, been working with Sean for, you know, a bunch of years now. So, yeah, I was really happy with this project. So Sean and I are going to continue doing some other work together in the future, too. So. So given your similar but different paths, uh, how did you guys align on this topic for this particular film? Well, I, this, is a, this is a project that I've been wanting to do since like 2008 after the first subprime uh, collapse. Mm -hmm. And I was getting no traction trying to make this film. People, you know, you know, in our industry, I think we're living in bubbles. And they didn't realize how bad this was hitting the general population, the subprime crisis. And I was, you know, you know, when you're trying to go to rich people to get money to do something like that, it's not easy. You know, it's kind of like, you know, shooting themselves in the foot, maybe they're thinking. But mm -hmm. a lot of it was like, oh, I don't think it's that big of a problem. You know, we'll just bail out the banks and everything will be OK. So, it, you know, it's been a fight to get this film done. And Sean and I tried to like get it back off the ground around 2014. And it just like our goal was to get it out for the 2016 election because I really thought that was sort of a really it was going to be like a really watershed sort of year, which I was right on. But it's Sean and I it just we couldn't get it done by 2016. And Sean had to deal with some stuff, you know, he had to buy and repair his family house and just everything just didn't align right. And then, you know, uh, about two years, at, about 2018, Sean's like, let's get going on the project again. Let's mm -hmm. start it up again because nothing's gotten better. Everything's still terrible. Um, and so we just went flying from there. And from there, I just, you know, started assembling a team. So, Sean, you know, to take a lot of the load off of me and Sean. And that's, you know, that's how it came about. So. And in a nutshell, your, your film examines the destabilizing effects of income inequality on every level of society. And obviously, the title of the film is Americond. Sean, in your estimation, what's the con? What's America being conned about? Well, it's being conned about a lot of things. <laughs> that, um, that the American dream, the path to the American dream still exists. That the middle class is the greatest middle class in the world. It used to be, you know, used to be able to uh, work really hard, get a house, have a car, have vacations. And that really, for the vast majority of the country, doesn't exist anymore. Um, and even if it does, 
you know, the middle class and the upper middle class are not stable like they used to be. You know, you get a job um, and you, you'd be able to continue with that job throughout your career mm-hmm. and your life and get a pension and retire well. And uh, housing was affordable. Um, and it just that has just been eroded. And we just see this upward redistribution of $50 trillion dollars from 1975 till today from the basically the bottom you know 85 90% to the top 1% or really 0.1%. So when you guys were planning on 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 making this film how are you positioning it to say would be funders or supporters in terms of what what were you saying the thesis of the film was? The thesis of the film is that the income inequality is destabilizing mm-hmm. everything and mm-hmm including uh, our democracy. So when when rural America is making 50% of what it made in 1975, they're going to get pissed. Yeah. And, you know, both parties, you know, abandoned them. Um, you know, the Democratic Party was very strong in, in rural America at that time. And I think they feel most betrayed by the, the Democrats um because uh they were kind of abandoned and when you try and try and try and you know you lose your farm or you lose your you know your job to a a box store um and you have no more hope well you're probably going to uh go with the candidate that wants to burn it all down Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's what we're seeing and the insanity in all this is uh, as Nick Hanauer in our film says, um, if no one has any money, who's going to buy the stuff? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if you keep cutting wages and you keep, you know, whittling down the middle class and killing the golden goose, um, it really is uh, detrimental to to them as well. Right. But they're just going for short term greed. Yeah, that's a that, that's a really interesting observation, and and I found that. Uh, Nick Hanauer's uh, participation in your film was particularly useful for a number of reasons. First of all, he's hugely successful. Uh, he not in your film necessarily, but in other venues, I've heard him refer to himself as a proud, unapologetic capitalist. And so that kind of throws you know, throws water on the argument that, no, you must be some type of a, you know, socialist pinko if you're interested in in income inequality. Like, if, if you are a tried and true capitalist, then the marketplace should be able to vet your, you know, your whatever your um, your product or your service and reward it accordingly assuming a level playing field. And I, I thought that his participation in your film was particularly powerful, not exclusive uh, of the other folks, but when you were putting the people together to to speak on the subject, how did you go about sort of casting not just the individuals that you're profiling, the folks that are dealing with the issues of in, uh, income inequality and the fallout of income inequality, but the, the those who are providing a historical context and sort of expert analysis. You know, I, th- I think, uh, you know, Julian uh, Hurley was, you know, uh, key in, in casting the, the people. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff Mann 
and Dave were uh, key in casting the uh, the experts. I'll let Dave answer this. Well, uh, Nick Nick was a real catalyst for this project because mm -hmm. um, he he really got me going. When in 2013 he wrote his you know kind of famous article now about the pitchforks coming for the billionaires, where yes. he was warning, "Hey, it's they're coming for us." And that was a real catalyst for this. I was like, "Oh, okay, here it is." Because one of the things that drove me to look at this and talking about the con part, like also Nick says in the film, he's like the big con is, you know, trying to convince poor people, whatever is good for rich people is good for everyone else, you know, and that's, that's part of the con. But the big thing that got me going was, you know, uh, one day I was just sitting around and I had just finished reading the third volume of Robert Caro's LBJ biography. And so I was watching LBJ's War and Poverty speech in 65, and it was a great speech. And it's like, wow. And then, you know, I thought about it. And I was like, you know, so he like declared war on poverty. And then I looked at it and I'm like, wow, the war on poverty's turned into a war against the poor now because yes. of this narrative of trying to vilify the poor. And they're poor because they don't work hard enough or this and that, you know, all these myths trickle down economics. And that's what really got me going. And then it was great because I got to Nick. It wasn't straight through his article. Um, I had sort of like, as I started to film this, um, out of the blue, Barry Ritzholtz is in our film, mm -hmm. uh, wrote Bailout Nation back in 2008. He saw the subprime crisis coming. And so Barry just reached out to me, like DM'd me in Twitter. Like I was like, oh my God, Barry Ritzholtz just DM'd me. And so I was like, hey, we're, you know, would you want to be in this film? I'm starting to work on this film. And he's like, yeah, sure. And then I got up there and Sean her filming and I was like, yeah, I'm about to track down Nick Hanauer. And he's like, all right, let me take care of that. Rings up Nick Hanauer. <laughs> boom. Like Nick's going to do it. And then I'm in the office. And so he introduced us to Josh Frankel, who we gave an associate producer credit for, who's like one of the great like he's got such a great economic mind and he's like writes on Barry's blog. And so, you know, we are looking to nail down like Paul Krugman and this and that. Cause I knew they all have like this dinner together every month. Okay. It's like all these are kind of like Barry and Josh and Paul Krugman and all them. And then he's, um, uh, I talked to Josh and Josh is like, he's like, you know what? Get Paul Krugman's boss, Janet Gornick. So he hooked me up with Janet. She was on board um, and it, they just sort of fell like that. It was like, you know, then Jeff got, Jeff Mann got involved and he was good. Like he tracked down like, uh, G, um, Jacob Hacker at, um, Yale. And so it just sort of like, it, it sort of unfolded like that. So, you know, it's like, once you know, one of these guys, and I'm always pretty good at wrangling people to mm -hmm. be in films. Like I, usually I, I, usually I get who I want. That's I'm, I've always been very lucky about that. So I've always been really good at wrangling the experts. So. And then, you know, Jeff's such, Jeff's like, Jeff Mann is basically, you know, he could have a PhD in economics. So he was great to bring in. And, you know, we've been friends since we were children. So it kind of fit perfectly. When you were conducting your interviews and doing your research, did you find any instances of anybody making the case that either we don't have a problem with income inequality in this country or, yeah, we have a problem, but it's actually a good thing? I'll always say it actually Jeff was good on this. I started on this, but we started all those people that would, would not support our thesis. None of them agreed to be in the film. None mm -hmm. of them would be in the film. 
Like, and Jeff's pretty good. Jeff's good at needling people and trying to like, you know, he kept going back and they would just, you know, they, they would reply maybe to the first one and then never reply again. And like, you know, some of them I won't name, but some are like, Oh, you'll just twist my words and this and that, (laughs) you know? So it's like, you know, there was a, it seemed like they had distrust. It's like, I don't know why I'm, I wouldn't change your words. I'm a documentarian. I, you know, what you say is what I'm going to put on, um, you know, it's going to go, go up on the screen, but yeah, we couldn't wrangle any of those people. We couldn't wrangle though. They were impossible to get. You know what why you, I think? Yeah, sure. they know it's a lie. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, they know it's a lie. It's either they, they know it's a lie, and it's uh, it's like the best negotiating tactic, right? Uh, if we raise rage, wages, it's going to kill jobs, right? So it's a blanket negotiating tactic, right? Right. Um, but if they, you know, and we were, you know, I was asking Nick, I was like, why didn't Obama do more for the poor, right? Yep. And he said, because he surrounded himself with the Chicago School of Business team. Sure. And they really believe that if you help uh, the poor, it, you know, it'll, it'll hurt them. And that if you help the rich, it'll trickle down. And they really and truly believe that. And that's why, uh, you know, and that's why, you know, a lot of, you know, we filmed in 23 states. Mm-hmm. There met a lot of people, you know, a lot of people that didn't make it on camera. But, you know, there, there were many people who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. Sure. Yeah. And what's interesting is that you you chart that progression, um, not specifically to the NAFTA legislation, but sort of the roots of that disaffection of, Sean, as you had mentioned earlier, uh, the middle America, middle class who has been told time and time again that, you know, a rising tide's going to lift all boats, and if we globalize the economy, it's going to be a win-win for everybody. It did not turn out to be that way. And so when Trump came along, who benefited from globalization, you know, as a, as a, as a private business person, he was saying the right things to the right audience. He was stoking that, that anger. Uh, and because it was so emotion driven, in many instances, the dots weren't necessarily connected. In other words, that, you know, the, the, the guy who, who lived in Indiana, who may have voted for Obama in 2012, and then his whole life was in a different place in 2016, wasn't necessarily connecting the dots that the Republican who was representing him, you know, sold out to the to the multinational. Yeah. And, you know, the Trump really co-opted it. I think it was in August of the year before he was elected. Uh, Bernie was doing really well. And Mm -hmm. then uh, Bernie got kind of smashed. Uh, And he 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 saw because he's a really he's a smart salesman. Mm -hmm. He saw and all of a sudden he started repeating Bernie's rhetoric a bit, you know, and he, he realized that that he could get. And I was just blown away that they believed him. Right. Well, you often hear that observation that if you go far enough to the right and far enough to the left, you eventually meet each other. <laughs> and yeah, that, he, he didn't well, believe it. Yeah, he Trump did not. He saw right. that opportunity. Right. And he, and he you know, started to, uh, you know, to, to talk that way. And then 
then you you know you just saw this this uprising you know so you're, 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 your film in part deals uh deals a lot with the uh the um situation with unions in 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 this country and how at this point uh union membership this is to um, private unions uh is somewhere between six and ten percent in this country uh whereas 60 years ago 70 years ago it was up over 33 percent uh of workers belong to a union when you chart the dismantling of unions how much is tied to a veneration of wealth or is it a successful depiction of some negativity around unions on the part of management what what did you guys discover about how differently union membership is perceived and the power of unions being perceived well when we when we first started we didn't set out to make a union movie mm-hmm we started asking all the different experts what are the solutions and it was unions 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 and then when i asked um you know our uh our childhood poverty expert and he said unions i nearly fell off the chair and i said i guess we're making a union film <laughs> it was the only way to negotiate against consolidated wealth and power is is organized people yeah right that it's the only counterbalance to it that works and and similar to my previous question what do you hear for those who are anti-union what what's the you know what what's the argument that they 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 build their supposition on well it usually has something to do with uh some dead mobster that was dead before i was born and so because jimmy hoffa was crooked all unions are crooked is yes that the, yeah is, that, was, okay. that was like the normal that's pretty easy thinking <laughs> yeah and it's like uh he was dead before i was born yeah uh, i don't think we can yeah, blame him to, anymore <laughs> you have to take you take that with a grain of salt it's like well was he necessarily bad for the teamsters you know <laughs> Or right. was it just because he was corrupt and working with, you know, I mean, he's, I, I mean, is are his crimes worse than corporate crimes? I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, you know, you'd be the judge of that, you know, they're both working outside the lines, but, you know, I mean, one of the, one of the things that, that was another key point that got me going on this was I, uh, University of Iowa has a wonderful labor institute and they had put out this, big study on unions, like in around, I think it must be around 2012, 13, 14, somewhere in that range. And I saw these charts and, I, and it just showed the growth of like the middle class with the rise of unions. And then when you saw the decline in people's wages, it showed, you know, that unions were declining at the same rate. So it's like, wow. So they climb and they fall at the same rate. So I'm like, well, this, this can't be, you know, a coincidence or that's, you know, you can correlate that data to show, okay, when there's a lot of people in unions, people are making more money, you know, and you're seeing the data, you know, you look at the data, it's like, you know, what, like you average union member makes like 20% more or something like that. I think the number is now, but it's, you know, but you know, they spent decades trying to vilify unions, you know, like they're corrupt. Um, Oh, you have to pay dues, you know, all this stuff. Like if you look at all the anti-union websites that like Amazon and these companies put up, that's always a thing. You don't have to pay dues with us. We're family, you know, that thing, you know, you're going to get your pizza party and, 
you know, and, you know, maybe a beanbag chair for 15 minutes a day, but, you know, you don't need a union. And one of the union stories that, that your film focuses on is the efforts to unionize Amazon warehouse workers. Sean, tell us a little bit about Chris Smalls and how you found him and why you thought his efforts on behalf of other Amazon warehouse workers uh, were right for this film. Well, you know, what was really interesting is when we started this, um, there would be like one article about income inequality every nine months. And we were like, we're on the right track. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there was nothing about unions. Um, and then, um, so we started filming different unions and and, and Jillian, Jillian Hurley got, got us in touch with Chris Smalls. And his, his, his story didn't quite fit. Uh-huh. Um, he, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a union leader yet. He had just started. He did a walkout, um, because they didn't have any masks and gloves during the beginning weeks of COVID and everyone was getting sick. And some people were, you know, very sick and some people died. And, um, so I met him, we started filming with him and I, my gut reaction was like, I'm just going to keep filming with him. I didn't know why. Mm-hmm. And then we decided to go down to Bessemer, Alabama, uh, with him. Uh, he wanted to go down there, so we drove down together and, you know, filmed the. Uh, you know, he was trying to show support, solidarity to that union, um, and he was basically rejected. Yeah, they wouldn't. Even, they really wouldn't even meet with him. Um, and they were de- dejected, and we were all in the Airbnb. You know, I was like, oh, I guess this is it for you know for this part of the story. And I said, uh, you know what? Start your own union. Mm-hmm. And they all perked up, you know, all, all five of them. And they, and you know, I'm not saying that I did it or they did it. And, you know, they, they rose up and, you know, to their credit, seven days a week, three shifts, they, you know, they started organizing their union and, um, you know, they spent tens of millions of dollars to take down this very small group of, you know, 10 people, really. This is Amazon doing the spending. Yes. Yeah. Uh, To crush them. You know, they had, like, donated food and, like, a tent and a couple chairs. And they went up against the richest man of the world at the time. And they beat him. So that goes to show that you can make change with a very small group. It gives me a lot of hope for the future. And... You know, if you're just tenacious enough uh, that, you know, you can make great change. And and you've seen the explosion since then. The auto workers, SAG, you know, uh, this is all since. We, Part-time we UPS drivers, airline, yes. uh, airline pilots. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 2023 it, was a was a big year in terms of uh, some union wins. Although if I'm if, if my research is correct. Uh, although the Amazon union was approved uh, in in New York, um, they still don't have a contract. Correct. Yes. So they're just using their lawyers. So they're going to try to essentially bleed them dry by throwing armies yeah. of lawyers at them. So you, you have, you know, 45 years of uh, the chipping away of the... Uh, union protections through, you know, laws. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
the NLRB has been weakened, so they don't have any teeth anymore. So a company like Amazon will just sandbag you, outspend you. But these guys aren't going to give up, I, I, you know. And I think it's it's going to spread to other places. What did you so. guys discover about, or or what theories perhaps did you come up with around the uh, the mindset of so many seemingly uh, that attaches virtue with wealth that that wealth is so venerated and that anything that seems to cast aspersions on that it, it won't even be it won't even be entertained so if you know and sean you said earlier the the mindset is well if somebody's poor they must be lazy or stupid and if somebody's wealthy well that just means they work harder and they're smarter and Sometimes those, you know, those uh, personas exist. But guess what? There are lazy, wealthy people and there are hardworking, poor people. One of the statistics in your film, uh, you said that around 70 percent of all people who receive government assistance work full time and 40 percent of homeless people work full time. So I'm always curious around the mindset that tends to become the prevailing mindset uh, in terms of the way people think of the wealthy and think of the poor. You know, it's been over 50 years of just, you know, denigrating the poor. And, um, you know, and you, you look at it, how everyone's celebrated, you know, you, you just look at celebrity, you know, look at Elon Musk, like, you know, he, he has like this rabid fan base. And it's like, you know, the guy, it's a, it's a total facade. There's so much conning going on with those guys about making up who they are and they're just revered just for having money i mean just for being wealthy it's not like you know they're not like jonas sulk or anything like that um you know it, it there was another point sorry i had a, this point that i was going to make about this now i forgot um um sean you want to step in here because i just yeah, yeah. so so eventually you've, you've, you've had this propaganda really that that you know Ayn Rand kind of started, uh, which was the backlash to the New Deal. And then, um, you know, uh, was was kind of uh, put into mainstream media that um, the only, um, you know, the, the, the only uh, reason for a company or its only purpose is to make profits. Mm-hmm. It's not... The, the good of the nation it's not the good of the environment it's not the good of the workers it's only to make profit and make as much profit as you can and when that is your your battle cry it you're going to leave devastation in your wake um and one thing i want to say also is you know when i was saying the path to the middle class you know that was for white men mm-hmm. right right so i, I don't want to leave that out right mm-hmm. women couldn't even have credit cards until 1974. Yeah. Right. Um, so, um, and then, you know, um, all the minorities, you know, um, though, though in unions and especially in the UAW, you watch them just ascend into the middle class. Yep. Right. Um, and then after some of those closed, uh, you know, they, those communities fell apart again. Um, yeah. 
When you're I making a film like this, that is, uh, there, there, there's a lot of data that's referenced, you know, in your film. Statistics about, I just, I just rattled off a few of them around, you know, percentage of people uh, who receive government assistance, but they're still working. But you, you've also got a lot of data around uh, 45% of Americans age 18 to 65 right now make a median wage of 10.50 an hour, et cetera, et cetera. As a storyteller, as a filmmaker, how do you balance the data that's going to lend credence to your thesis while not overwhelming the viewer and, you know, have them come away feeling like, whoa, that was really abstract. Like, where's the where, where where's the heart of this story? Yeah. So so when we set out, uh, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that uh, we had to tell emotionally compelling stories mm -hmm. of Americans who are uh, struggling through this uh, because, you know, uh, we could we could have told the data driven exclusively data-driven uh thing and you know and all the econ nerds would love it and uh uh but for it to connect to people it has to mean something uh and you know when like when christina is talking about thinking about killing herself um on the back of her truck you know and she yep. works so incredibly hard and she's just not making it and Christina uh, is the single mom truck driver. Yeah, yep. with three, three small children. Yep. And, um, you know, and you could see in the film, and, and it really is true that, you know, she works so hard and she's just not making it. And for her to even contemplate killing herself with having three children, this econo these economic situations that have been manipulated uh, against the vast majority of the people have real world consequences, right? We see suicide rates are way up, drug addictions way up, you know, uh, mental illnesses way up. You know, how could, if you're not mentally ill before you become homeless, you certainly will after. If you're not doing drugs before you become homeless, the good <laughs> chances that you will after. Yeah. Uh, you know, not all of us have you know, a couch to sleep on, uh, you know, when it all falls apart, um, you know, so those safety nets are so important and, you know, to, to have the children suffer so greatly, uh, in this country. Um, and, and we watched, we watched them, you know, with, with the, the child relief during COVID, mm -hmm. you know, it was, it was the biggest, uh, fall in childhood poverty in our lifetimes right. or, Maybe even longer than that. This so, uh, since LBJ, yeah, because when LBJ when LBJ started his war on poverty in '65, uh, we were looking at poverty levels around 25 percent or so in that range. And by the time Nixon had started dismantling all his policies, like in the early set late '60s, early early '70s, it, he had half poverty to like 11 percent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then we're back on this vicious cycle because one of the other facts, like how you touched on that, the um, the the wage, like 40, you know, 45 percent of Americans are making 10, 25 an hour or less. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was another thing got me going, because I remember after watching, you know, years, you know, over a decade ago, watching that LBJ speech. And I was like, what was the minimum wage in 1965? So I looked it up as like a dollar 25 an hour. And I'm like, huh. So it's only gone up like six hours and like $6 an hour in 50 years. 
Okay. And so I started extrapolating, you know, just doing some root and I'm like, wow. So like I, I calculate the minimum wage should be like at least $20 an hour. And then Barry Ritzholtz, you know, in the film, he sort of backed my, you know, the premise I came up with and said it should be like 22 to 24 an hour. So do the math, you know, almost half the country is making half of what the minimum wage should be. You know, that's crazy to mm -hmm. me. That's like that, that, that and the $50 trillion of transfer of wealth from the bottom 90% to the top 1%, like those things, those numbers to me just were like, they, they blew me away. Like, I, I mean, literally I was like floored. I'm like, you know, I was like checking data. I'm like, is, can this be right? And I was like, it's right. I'm like, this is frightening. I mean, it's really frightening. It's still, we're, our minimum wage is still seven twenty five. It's yep. like, come on. That's, yeah, that's crazy. In 15, like the fight for 15, which Nick Hanauer played a big part in that. Yep. This is why I like Nick too. Nick, you know, he, you know, he talks a talk and he walks a walk. He does the whole thing. Like he got behind the fight for 15. You know, he helped with legislation in Washington state. He's been helping with like working overtime laws in Washington state. So Nick, uh, Nick's out there. He's not just like spouting it off, trying to be like, you know, this, oh, rich guy. Oh, I'm sorry. You guys are poor. He's actually doing stuff about it. And he, um, you know, and he nailed it. He was like, you know, he said before the Seattle brought to 15, well, the fight for 15 is like, you know, that's a number from that should be like 15 years ago. It should be the fight for like 25 now. But right. it's, uh, you know, Nick, you know, proved it in Seattle. They raised a 15 and what businesses have thrived. You know, they raised it $15 an hour because people that work there can actually buy the products that they're selling, you know. So, I mean, you, you know, you can see all the, a lot of these myths are being dispelled. Have you, each of you found, since you've completed the film and you've been screening it, and I assume you've been, you know, uh, speaking with audiences and people like myself, um, what's the biggest challenge around making, taking the subject of income inequality or, or wealth inequality to something that's just not amorphous along the lines of like climate change like it's very easy for people to say you know they're they're against climate change or they're concerned about climate change but it's very tough to wrap their head around particulars in terms of how it's going to impact their particular life income inequality oftentimes feels like it's in it's in the same it, ha it faces the same challenge in the sense that a lot of people judge how the economy is doing by how they individually are doing so if you just say to someone who's you know they may be treading water but they're holding their own in the middle class or the upper middle class and you know maybe they're only five thousand uh, dollars short of being dead broke but at least they got those five thousand dollars and the allure of the tax cut that's going to make them rich is more enticing than having to do the work around studying what income inequality is all about. You know, that might be an uphill battle. So how do you take a subject that, as I said before, can get bogged down in statistics and, and readings of statistics and... And, and essentially sound the alarm on it and talk about what's at stake if the trends continue to move as they have been. Yeah, I mean, so you, you connect the stories to individual people uh, who are suffering. And once you see that, you can't really look away. But then you also show that um, on this path that we are on, 
in history. It's a revolution, a police state, or uh, an authoritarian government. That's the path. Do we want that? Do we want a revolution? They don't end well. Um, a, you know, a, a authoritarian government where, oh, you have that great business. Yeah, well, that, now my, my, uh, my son-in-law owns your business, right? Uh, you don't own your business anymore. Right. Um, you know, to lose the, to lose the democracy... Uh, which I think is very much on the table, and it's very much on the table um, in, in in November mm -hmm. to give that away for a tax cut when you're already paying the lowest tax rates, you know, basically in 50 years or something. You know, the billionaires are <laughs> they're buying places in New Zealand because they're just going to take as much as they can and they're going to leave. We don't have the same options. Yeah, I was recently reading about the the boom in bespoke bunkers, super elaborate bunkers that the um, the Zuckerbergs and the Teals and and so forth are going to take refuge in when those pitchforks present themselves. Yeah, and, and I just wanted to, if any of them are listening, do you think your your Navy SEAL team uh, won't take all your stuff? Yeah. <laughs> you're out of your mind you can't even you can't even use a screw gun yeah you're done. <laughs> seal team six will become the richest yeah. group exactly you know? <laughs> your film is currently available for for streaming i know on youtube and on amazon prime and on apple tell me a little bit about the thinking and the strategy that uh you guys came up with around how you wanted the film distributed i know it did have a a short theatrical run uh and then it went to stream to streaming tell talk to me a little bit about what your objectives are and what type of feedback you've been hearing since it's been out in the world i feel you know i think we made a few missteps in rolling it out um I think theatrically we're learning because Sean and I are learning this now is like, we should have been a little more selective. And I think doing like, cause we're getting now, you know, we get getting like smaller, like I just moved to Portland, Maine. And like, you know, I had up in Belfast, me and the colonial theater reached out to me on Facebook, like, Hey, we saw your film. Like, hmm. would you want to screen you know, and I had a great screening and like feedback I got there from was, was great. was like, you know, you need to show this to younger people. This needs to go to the young people, like the, the older members of the crowds, like all the young people need to see this film. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, something like this is like, you know, because you always think it's like, oh, it's got to be in New York and L.A., Chicago. But, you know, as um, a distributor told us, like, I think it would play well in, you know, theaters in smaller cities and smaller towns. Mm -hmm. This would be something good. And I think I think we're starting to feel that a little bit. Um you know, the other aspect to this is like, is, you know, nailing the marketing, like you kind of got to get it right out of the chute mm. and come out strong. Cause it, it's just so hard. There's your, you know, you're, you're competing against so much content out there. Right. And, you know, and this is a film that, you know, are like, are necessarily our big corporate streamers gonna like <laughs> jump behind, you know, they don't care. Cause you know, they, they take the lion's share for the streaming money, but it's like, uh, you know, are they really going to get behind it? So, you know, there's been, you know, there's, you know, some new learning curve to the news, you know, how, 
you know, films are processed now. Like, you know, you saw, I saw, you know, like Doug Lyman, you know, he's refusing to go to South by Southwest for his Roadhouse film. He's like, cause, cause, uh, Amazon bought it and they're not going to put it in theaters and he's pissed. And you're seeing a lot of that. So you're starting to see, you know, filmmakers. And this is something when I started that company with Morgan Spurlock back in 99, 2000, that was a thing because I had a, you know, a good tech background. So I was creating a platform like let's just start serving up entertainment on our own platform. So we call it was called the con, the con.com. And it's like, so I, you know, we started shooting at Bet You Will and like it exploded overnight. Like within the night, I had like a million hits on the, on the show. Mm. And so my thing was like, oh, let's just start rolling out, you know, distributing our own entertainment. Like screw everyone else, you know, because everyone's starting to get broadband now. And, you know, now it's funny, 25 years later, I'm seeing like, you know, Steven Soderbergh came out. I was like, oh, I'm going to self-distribute my next film. You know, because I'm sick of the streamers getting all the money, he, right. you know, and he's like, I'm not getting any money from them. They don't, re- you know, the reporting's bad. You, know, you get like Amazon, like they're always late. And it's like, well, why can't I get real time figures on my streaming? You guys are goddamn Amazon web service. You're AWS. You're <laughs> telling me you ca- I can't get live data on my streams. That's complete bullshit. It's complete bullshit. You know, I, I mean, it, it, it kills me. So. I, you know, I've actually, one of the things I'm working on a side project is a streaming platform, you know? Um, and I built one, <laughs> I built one looks just like Netflix, but it's like, uh, you know, I've been playing with it and I'm like, well, maybe my next one, I think, you know, or I was thinking of going out as a you know, part of my business and I just started a new company called Mainly Films and, you know, where I'm going to be teaching courses and this and that. And, but one of the things too is like, oh, maybe I'll start going out to like documentarians that are having a hard time getting their films distributed and maybe I'll build this platform and start doing that, you know, and just, you know, split it with them. They can get, you know, ha- half the money, you know, and it's like, you know, I'll take yeah, half of it or whatever. I haven't come out, but it's something I'm looking at, you know, you're seeing um, a consolidation in the, in in the film business similar to uh, and a monopolization similar to you're seeing across uh the board and uh after a year of you know of strikes in the industry um you're not gonna you're not gonna see the streamers pushing films like ours but we are getting great uh the colleges are really starting to pick it up mm-hmm. and uh, we'll be in yale on the 15th February um, to do a, a big screening there, Pomona College uh, the month after. But, you you know, a- anyone who comes to our website at americond.com uh, and see all the places where you can watch it, um, you can you can stream it with commercials for free or you can pay f- $4 uh, or you can come to one of the, the live events. And what we're doing is we're also doing monthly events um where uh, we stream it through the week um, to you. And then like uh, this month we have um, uh, Marty, Marty uh, Walsh, the mm-hmm. Secretary of Labor, who will then do a Q&A at the end. Hmm. Uh, and then we'll be doing that with, with all the different people in the film. Excellent. Well, we've been talking about Americond with the film's director, Sean Claffey, and with the film's co-producer and writer, Dave Pedersen. Gentlemen, thanks for your time, and thanks for this film. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael.